Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. Today on the podcast, we have Clem Bastow. Clem Bastow is an author, cultural critic, and screenwriting researcher from NAM or Melbourne. Their work appears regularly in The Guardian, The Saturday Paper, and The Big Issue. Their debut non-fiction book, Late Bloomer, was published by Hardy Grant in 2021. They are currently completing a PhD in screenwriting and autistic experience at RMIT, and they have taught screenwriting at University of Melbourne and short story at RMIT. Clem would like to respectfully request that the heating is turned down on all trams. (laughs) <laughs> um, Clem I have to say I agree with you uh oh, having lived in Melbourne hot. for four years it's a little bit of a nightmare it's hell it's hell I'm always leaping off trams when I need to get somewhere but I just can't I can't wait another second <laughs> <laughs> so Clem it's so lovely to have you on the podcast thank you so much for coming on oh thanks for having me So let's crack straight in. Uh, We usually start with this question with all of our guests, and I'm really interested to hear what does neurodivergence actually mean to you? Um, I guess it's probably useful in a personal sense for me to kind of differentiate between I think neurodivergence as a whole and the neurodiversity movement is is amazing. For me, I'm autistic. Um, You know, there are some other question marks, but I don't know what they are or if they will turn out to be anything. So so for me, uh, it's more about um, the specifics of autism. And I think that in itself is kind of an autistic thing for me. Often, you know, sometimes people will be like, you're a diverse writer, Clem Baston. I'm like, I'm autistic. <laughs> you can say it. But, but I think, I mean, I think it's at its heart, it's an acknowledgement of um, difference. You know, it kind of harks back to, what Temple Grandin said and what Chloe Hayden has has called her book, you know, different, not less. Um, so I think that, that that is at the the kind of heart of all uh, notions of neurodiversity for me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I agree. And I think, you know, there can be so many nuanced and complex definitions about what specifically neurodivergence is and what is neurodiversity and what are all the little sort of facets that come under that. But, uh, you know, I exactly agree. I think the core of it is really just neurodiversity is the range of differences in the population and neurodivergence is people who are atypical you know, different from that norm. So, yeah. And I love your um, uh, specification. I'm autistic. I'm not- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think that broadly, you know, I don't have a problem with neurodiversity. I think it's a fantastic thing and it's great that the general public is getting on board with it. I think where it can get tricky is where we, we use it in a sort of euphemistic sense. And I think mm. sometimes it is important to be specific. So somebody's specific experience of neuro- neurodivergence might be autism or autism and OCD or ADHD and autism, you know, and so I think that that's, I think it's just a time and a place thing. Um, But, yeah, it's definitely something that I've noticed a bit. 
it's a sort of a well-meaning thing that some neurotypical, for want of a better word, people will say neurodivergent when I'm like, but what do you actually mean? <laughs> well, yeah, it kind of sounds like um, autistic light. Right, it's like, <laughs> a friendly version. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, we'll just say neurodivergent. We won't actually say autistic. That's right. Yeah, and a lot of people still struggle. You know, it's one of those things when you when you use identity first language, uh, which I do, and a lot of other people do in the movement. Um, there's still, you know, that's partly to kind of dismantle those ideas about shame and uh, not the idea is, or wouldn't you, you know. Wouldn't you prefer to not self-identify that way? Um, and uh, so I suppose saying I'm autistic is a way to kind of go, it's okay, like you can say it too, you know, because that's who I am, it's what I am. Um, so that's, I guess for me, you know, language is kind of a, a political a political thing in that way because you sort of sometimes see people, you know, just shirking away from it a little bit and it's a way of saying to them, it's okay to describe me like this because that's important to me. As a fellow autistic person, I definitely agree about loving specificity. Yeah. <laughs> Please be as specific and detailed oh as possible. <laughs> I often like often when I'm doing an event or something and they're like, Do you know what else what access needs do you have? I'm like, don't be afraid to write instructions for me that seem way too obvious. Like, here's a picture of the door, you know, this is the building that you're going into. And it's I think it does. It kind of comes back to that. It's that that desire for directness and and a kind of I don't know discomfort with with sort of euphemism and vagueness, which I guess was one of the ways I started to realise that I was autistic. Was that any any kind of realm where there was any sense of like uncertainty, I, I felt very much like the you know the math math lady gif. Like <laughs> so, particularly you know in social in social situations, whether it was friends or work or, or dating. Uh, anything where nothing was kind of stated and you were supposed to try and read between the lines, that was where I was like, this seems harder for me than it is for other people. Well, this is kind of a really good segue then into our next question, um, <laughs> which you may have done intentionally. Um, but, uh, you know, I know that you were late diagnosed in that you're diagnosed in adulthood, not in childhood. Yeah. And I think, you know, for a lot of neurodivergent and using the umbrella for <laughs> ADHDs, autistic individuals, etc. Um, but for a lot of people who receive that adult diagnosis, often they then can kind of look back through their life mm. and sort of be like, ah, oh, that was because of this or that was this thing. And so I'm wondering if there's any specific times that you recall, you know, throughout your childhood and adolescence where you realised that you thought differently to your peers, but you didn't really have a framework to conceptualise that experience. And my second kind of add-on to that question is how did you conceptualize that experience as a child and adolescent? Oh, look, every day of my life. I mean, it was very clear from a pretty early age that I was different to my peers and not just different in the way that, you know, we're all different in a kind of Benetton uh, way. Like I really, it was obvious that there were things that were easy for others that were difficult for me. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not a binary thing. It's not every non-autistic person finds the social social interactions easy, but it was different. It was difficult in a way that seemed, you know, unusual, I guess. Um, and I think it was that kind of complex combination of strengths and challenges. So, you know, why am I so good at certain things, but I'm, I'm not so good at others? And, I, you know, I always kind of dance around describing it as not good, but I think um, that deficit lens 
unfortunately, is still how we find our way into diagnosis of autism. And I'm sure it's the same for ADHD. They don't get you in a room and say, tell us about your special interests. You know, it's what things do you find hard? You know, what, where, where are your areas of, of um, you know, deficit and, and kind of and challenge? So for me, it was around things that I found difficult and they were often, I guess, it was a mix of things that I recognised, such as interacting with other human beings, but also just other things that I didn't. So, you know, having my hair brushed, I would just lose my mind. Um, having what we, you know, mum and dad probably were encouraged to think of as tantrums because they didn't know any better. Um, but I can now look back and go, they were meltdowns. And then I could, you know, it's also possible to have a tantrum if you're autistic, but I can see those experiences having been uh, just uncontrollable um you know, things that happened to me because of autism rather than I was a cheeky kid or, you know, I was naughty or stubborn or whatever. I mean, I think I was those things too. Um, but And so so because of that, I think I think I sort of self-styled as a bit of a, an outsider um, to cope with that and I always found myself responding to characters of fiction who were loners or often robots or aliens uh, you know, um, and I think that that was my way of kind of understanding my place in the world. And that became easier in a funny way. It became much harder in in adolescence because obviously in adolescence so much changes and the social realm becomes so much more important. But at the same time, you know, as a teenager and particularly a teenager in the, in the 90s, you were kind of, in, you know, it was cool to be different. So So I sort of had this weird grace period where I could tell that I was significantly different to everybody else, but but I sort of skated through because I guess on some level it was cool to be a weirdo. And you know, I, I hung out, I hung out with the the kind of Dungeons and Dragons music, funny kind of people at school. So it um, that was a nice cover, I think. But yeah, I think it was it was about finding recognizing myself in 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 characters of fiction and sort of going, oh well, you know, if C three PO can make it, maybe I can too. <laughs> Well, yeah, for sure. And I, you know, it's really interesting your description there about trying to find um, not just in your actual world, you know, like the other, you know, your group at school, the Dungeons Dragons kids, but also in the fictional world and or, you know, the the kind of um, in media and, and et cetera. And I think, you know, Monique and I have talked previously on the podcast about the power of archetypes and mm. being able to not just find your tribe kind of in the here and now, but being able to see how do I fit into society, into the world, like what's my place there? Um, and I think that's really interesting that you're talking about how, yeah, seeing yourself in fictional characters, even if they were robots or aliens, <laughs> was really important. You know, it was a really important part of your ability to conceptualise some of those differences that you experienced. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the interesting things about writing Late Bloomer too was was that opportunity to go back and look at things that I had engaged with and it was interesting how some of them were actually explicitly autistic. So a film like The Boy Who Could Fly, which I loved, um, didn't put two and two together, you know, that the boy himself was autistic. And and that film is kind of amazing because it came out at the same time or just before Rain Man and didn't really make much of an impact um, but it has such a different uh, approach to autism. It's, I don't want to say entirely strengths-based, but it's, 
you know, it frames his ostracizing, you know, by his peers as as a bad thing. And it's not there's not this sense of like, oh, we've got to fix this autistic kid so he can be normal, which is kind of the vibe that you get from Rain Man. Or or, you know, the tragedy of Rain Man is that he'll never be able to be normal. Um, and so, yeah, it was interesting to go back and be like, wow, I really loved that film and I borrowed it so many times and I wonder if on some level I kind of knew why I liked it. But, yeah, I just didn't have, didn't have the words to say it. So, Clem, can you tell us about your path to diagnosis? What led you to the point of exploring autism? I was writing a screenplay, uh, which I'm still working on because that's what screenplay development is like in Australia, and there had been repeated feedback around the character, the, the, the protagonist in particular, that her sort of motivations and emotions were sort of opaque and nobody was ever quite sure what was going on with her and I was really struggling to nail that in a way that I I felt I was doing pretty well in other ways with my screenwriting, you know, the the sort of structure and the humour and all of that. And I'd, I'd won a couple of awards and, and had a few rounds of development. So I knew I was good at screenwriting, in inverted commas. But, um, yeah, these questions kept coming up about this character. And so I, <laughs> my script editor gave me this amazing book called The Emotional Wound Thesaurus. Sounds like a great read. It's kind of <laughs> incredible. So you go in and you're like, all right, let's say you witness a train crash when you attend. This is how it might manifest, in, you know. And so you go through and you, all of these different things that people can experience and then how they kind of, um, what they turn into in terms of character traits. And so I just ended up, as it happened, reading the entry for Autism Spectrum Disorders and it was like, you know, here are all the challenges that the character might face if they, they if they grew up with this. And I was like, gee, that sort of feels a bit familiar. I think this character might be autistic. So I started to pursue that. And then as I read more stuff about autism in, in girls and women, I was like, man, this feels really familiar. And I had never, this was back in, you know, or almost five years ago. So it was kind of at the crest of the wave in terms of the emerging understanding of how, it can look different in different um, different people depending on their gender. And so I think it was the perfect time because previously when I had considered autism in the past, you know, you go online, you do a quiz and it's geared towards the same old um, diagnostic criteria and I would sort of get inconclusive results and then go, oh, well, I guess, I'm, I guess it's not that. Um, so once I sort of understood a bit more about how it might manifest in my life as somebody, you know, who, who grew up, um, as a girl and was therefore not picked up, um, that was a real eye-opener. So I sort of started to join the dots a bit and there was a um, an essay that Tony Atwood wrote for I think Leanne Holiday-Willie's book and I was reading that and every paragraph I was like, yep, yep, yes, that happened at that age, you know, that happened too. Um, and then I guess I was just lucky because a friend of mine was um, at the time uh, their daughter was being diagnosed and so um, – they recommended the clinic that she was going to. They ha- It was a lot of, you know, stars aligning because it is very hard to get diagnosed. Uh, and I just was lucky that it was a sort of perfect storm where I was employed at the time so I could afford it. There, there was an availability at the specialist. Um, and, yeah, so I was able to, to make that happen. Um, and it was kind of 
tense because you go in for this initial consult and say, listen, I think I might be autistic. You know, what do you reckon? Should we go ahead and do a screening? And you, you're sitting there going, well, they might say no. They might go, I'm an expert and I don't think you. this is worth pursuing. Um, but luckily they didn't. Having said that, I don't know anyone who has suspected that they are autistic who hasn't ended up being um, diagnosed. Uh, once you've sort of gone down that path of, I guess you could call it self-diagnosis, but more that process of research that we're prone to do. And I think that's the thing that maybe some people don't understand when they talk about the so-called epidemic of autism, you know, everyone's being diagnosed. People who have gotten to that point, it's a last straw for them, especially if you're older, you know, you've, you've, you've kind of um, eliminated all the other possibilities and uh, I think by the time you are prepared to pay somebody to tell you whether or not you're autistic, the chances are uh, it's it's probably fairly likely. So I think that there's this rather unkind notion in the general public that people who say, oh, I'm, I'm pursuing autism diagnosis are sort of just doing it on a whim, you know, or, oh, it's autism this week, is it? You know, I think that's very rare. I don't I don't think that's all that common at all. Usually, you know, I find that people have done tons and tons of research. They've read multiple books, articles. Like, I guess in order to understand yourself from an autistic perspective, it's kind of like you have to go on that deep dive and almost get immersed in like a like a mini special interest and learn everything about it to kind of see does this fit or does this not fit? Yeah, absolutely. And I had definitely done that in the past when – I'd had, you know, teachers or specialists sort of hint at other diagnoses that didn't quite fit and I would do that. I'd read everything I could and I'd, you know, watch YouTubes and read interviews with people who had whatever condition was being suggested and, and it never quite, yeah, it never quite gelled. And so I think that that's, that in itself is a sign that if it was just a special interest that I'd convinced myself I was autistic, I'd have been able to convince myself of all the other things that, was suggested as poss possibilities. I think also people often have a family, familial collect, um, connection. You know, they might have a kid or a relative who's just been diagnosed or is going through that process and that unlocks something. Yeah, the most common um, kind of path to, to diagnosis that I often see in adult women is, uh, yeah, my my daughter has just been diagnosed or my, you know, niece or exactly as you say, Clem, someone in the family has received a diagnosis and then that's alerted me to this possibility that actually autism is not always just a little boy playing with a train set in a corner. <laughs> and um, talking about light switches. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and then it's this kind of whole process of research and discovery. And, you know, it's interesting what you were saying there, Clem, around, you know, by the time that you get to that point where you're willing to pay someone to say, am I this thing? Um, more often than not, the adult women that come to me for, autist for autism uh, assessment have actually prepared a almost like a dossier yeah. of just here's all the things I've observed about myself. I've put it into categories for you. Um, someone even sent me a document that had like embedded links so you could like click the thing and go to the next one. And I'm like, I mean, this is our answer, right? <laughs> I can't relate at all. I've never seen a document like that and I definitely didn't make one when I was being diagnosed. <laughs> or I think when people are going through the, sc the screening questionnaires and really needing specifics on each question or they're spotting all of the errors in the questionnaires, 
For me, it was like anything where it was like add more if you like, you know, five paragraphs explaining 10 different examples of this particular thing that I'd experienced. And I also think that that uh, tendency to be very specific about the language and questionnaires um, can actually give women who are going through that process or, you know, people who maybe don't really, you know, they're new to this sort of process, um, it can actually give them a false negative in the sense that they're often so specific about, well, you know, I don't want to say yes to this because that isn't always true. And what about this and and whatever? And so this is where, and absolutely, you know, diagnosis is a privilege going through that process, you know, can be really difficult to access. But if it is possible, that's where doing it, you know, with a professional, if nothing more for then your peace of mind, because I think a lot of women that have come through that I've seen, it's sort of like we go through the intake and it's like, well, I mean, you know that you are. Right? <laughs> um, and but the, the comment is always, but I want to know for sure. Like I want to go through the assessment. I want to go through all the right processes, you know, right in inverted commas, so that it can be confirmed. Um, and a big thing for that I find is that imposter syndrome or feeling like yeah. you're a fraud and feeling like, am I just making this up? Well, that false negative thing was a big thing for me because I think for a long time when I would read, um, you know, are you interested in patterns? I'd be like, no, not really, because I'd think of that as like, you know, numbers. But then when I, when I kind of was diagnosed and then thought back over my response to a lot of those questions initially, I was like, well, yeah, of course I was. It was just different types of patterns. It's like syncopation in music or, you know, tracing the the flocked wallpaper at the Chinese restaurant when I was a kid. Like all of these things that I took either very literally or sort of didn't quite understand. And I actually think it's one of the reasons why I'm I'm interested in possibly redoing an ADHD screener because I think I think same thing. I read some of those questions and I was like, no, not really, but, you know, on reflection I can see how I interpreted them uh, in a way that was quite autistic. I mean, I think the other thing is is often by the time you are seeking diagnosis as an older person, you you maybe don't know enough about autism to sort of know how it might manifest in your life. So you're sort of looking for the most obvious things and they are often uh, – yeah, that, that the little boy with, with a train set kind of idea of how autism can manifest. So if you don't understand how it can be different, um, you don't know to kind of pick up on that in yourself. It almost sort of feels like it should be, you know, in an ideal world in the future, like a kind of two-phase process where it's like an initial screener and then six months to a year later you come back in when you know more. But, yeah, I think I think that that's a huge thing and that imposter syndrome is, is massive and I often talk to people who are older women who are interested in being diagnosed but they feel silly or, or they don't want to take up time or, you know, they feel they feel like they're making a mountain out of a molehill, you know, and I think it's, um, it's you know, hopefully it'll change but it's definitely a real thing. Yeah, I think that's why it's so important that we're getting more representation in the media now. You know, it's there's a lot more news articles out there's a lot more podcasts. There are a lot more books out. You know, I really liked, you know, when I read your book last year, that you did provide a lot of specific examples from your childhood and in the Australian cultural context of different things, you know, that you experienced that were markers for you of your autistic identity and how autism expressed itself within you. And that was super helpful, you know, even for me to kind of go through, oh, yeah totally relate to that or yup that makes sense it's having that 
I guess, um, information out in our culture that then makes people able to go, yes, I can see myself in that. Yeah. And I think that that's part of why we're getting a lot more women coming forward for, um, yeah, getting a diagnosis and wanting to be assessed. That was a big thing for me because I didn't have that, you know, uh, so I sort of had to piece it together from information that I found online. There was a bit, you know, I think Michelle Garnett and Tony Atwood, a lot of their materials I read and responded to, but but yeah, I felt like so much of what we sort of, how we understand autism is through that American lens or, you know, and then a distant second, maybe a British lens. And so for me, it was about exploring that in my my own personal context and just using my specific examples to hopefully broaden that 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 out to, to people who were interested. Because I think often if you're going through diagnosis yourself or maybe your kid or a loved one's been diagnosed or you're just interested about autism, you hear these phrases, circumscribed interest and, and sensory sensitivities and all that sort of, and you're just like, well, I don't know, what does that mean? So for it was an opportunity to say, here's what it meant for me and then broaden it out and say, here's how it might manifest in other people and now you've got a good working example. And I think that that's been useful too because I think it engenders empathy in the non-autistic reader because then they can go, oh, I remember the time I was trying to drive at peak hour and the sun was hurting my eyes, and you know, or whatever, and they can kind of recognise, okay, now I'll try and imagine experiencing all of those things at once. That must be really difficult because I think sometimes it's a, just a lack of it's a lack of understanding that leads to the dismissing of um, autistic people's support requirements that people just think how hard can it be you know we've turned off the hand dryers everything's fine now like you know i turned the light off come on in (laughs) so yeah just giving giving some more specific experiences uh ironically i think kind of universalizes it more That's a great point. Giving more specific experiences universalizes that. I love that. I think, yeah, that's so true. Um, and it really speaks to the absolute power of language in actually shaping our experience of the world. You know, we use language to convey our internal experience, but also language then affects how we experience the world. And, you know, I know, Clem, that you're really um, passionate and feel really strongly about autistic people telling their own stories and being the authors of their own narrative, their own stories. And I think part of you know, encouraging that and bringing that to the fore and focusing on that going forward is autistic people are then able to describe their experience in their own language. And then that can make it easier for someone else to relate, et cetera. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that's really true. And it's it's why I love the written word, you know, because, I mean, I can turn it on now to talk to you two for an hour or so. Um, but often I find it hard to express myself verbally. Um, and I know, uh, that that's true for a lot of autistic people and it, for non-speaking autistic people obviously even even more so so I think I think giving autistic people the ability to communicate through you know text-based media um, is great I mean having said that there's been some fantastic examples of non-speaking autistic people like I hesitate to say going viral but you know like people posting, mums posting videos of their kids and then all the like sound art community getting really involved and being like, how we really love the noises that he makes, you know, would he like to collaborate on a song? There's, you know, the Pixar um, short movie Loop, which had a non-speaking autistic teenager provide the voice 
the voice acting for one of the characters. So I think I think it's it's you know our job as as people who have the um, privilege to be kind of public facing autistic advocates to to really elevate the whole community um, and just continue to remind people it's not just those of us who you know me or Hannah Gadsby who get to write a book um, and work in the media but I think that's getting better you know I saw a fantastic documentary at at MIF um, based on the reason I jump and that focused on the experiences of um, a group of different non-speaking autistic people around the world and it was fantastic you know and I think watching that with a an audience that I think I can probably generalise to say were predominantly non-autistic was amazing because they came into it going, oh, this is a bit hard, and then they, they left feeling like, as they should, these people's experience of the world is valid. The fact that they are not able to, quote, have a conversation with me doesn't mean that they don't have um, a rich experience of the world either. And I think it's important to remember too that even though somebody might use, might not use spoken language, they still have a really vibrant intentional forms of communication as well so i think i think that is changing the idea of a non-speaking autistic person being you know scary or weird and we're getting a bit better so yeah i mean it would be fantastic if the next time they do love on the spectrum or you know you can't ask that um they do involve some non-speaking autistic people too um but yeah i mean to circle back to what we were talking about just before i think that's why everyone loves being online and so often people are surprised because I think autistic people are often used to using um, text-based mediums to communicate with each other. And so you get this sort of funny collision where people are like, oh, but you can express yourself well. How hard can your life be? Like <laughs> it's a, it's sort of a double-edged sword. Yes, it, it's the, the myth of high functioning, right? That's right. Yeah. And functioning is not, I don't know any autistic people, no matter what their support needs are, for whom function, you know, implied function is static. It's, it really is different day to day, hour to hour. Function is a, is a product of the interaction between, you know, your brain and the environment and the culture as well, yeah. the culture that you're in. There's so many different things. So, yeah, that's such a good point about it not being static. And I think this is something that a lot of families of autistic children really struggle with. Mm. And it's something that I feel really passionate about educating is that, you know, sometimes there's that idea that, oh, well, they were fine with this yeah, yesterday. They and loved today, going to work last I, week. I, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't know what's wrong with them today. It's like, well, today's a different day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and, and I think, you know, exactly as she was saying before, there's actually so much relatability in all underlying human experience it's just about finding what's that underlying thread like in that example mm. you know it's okay maybe you wouldn't find this distressing the next day but haven't you ever had a day when you come home and you feel like shit and everything is just a million times harder and everyone 100% goes oh yeah yeah, all the time. Yeah. Okay, so let's just apply that to another human being <laughs> um, <laughs> and sort of maybe think that that might be going on for them too. <laughs> and they say we don't have empathy. But, yeah, it's, it's exactly true. And I think I think people are starting to recognise that more, you know, even in the, the course it's taken to, I mean, my book's been out for just over a year and I can remember the first couple of interviews I would do you know, we'd get texts coming in saying, but you're obviously high functioning. Like, and, you know, you're just kind of like, let me just, let's unpack that for a moment. Um, but, yeah, it's, I think, I think what's great too is, and I think Chloe Hayden is really fantastic at being really explicit about 
her ups and downs, you know. She'll post on Instagram a video of when she's had enough, you know, and it's been really, uh, it's been great watching her do the press circuit for Heartbreak High um, because she'll talk about that. She'll say, you know, I had to be really on for two days because we were doing press and photographs and now I'm just like in my Udi at home, like stimming and watching my shark videos. Like that's great for people to see that, you know, you can thrive in the right environment. And it's often when it's an environment that we want to be in, like, so I'm a big show off. I love to do interviews. You know, I love to host book events and things. Um, but then I pay for it after. The problem is, um, is that I don't then go home and maybe I should, you know, take a photo of me in my big ugly T-shirt, like playing Animal Crossing and not talking for, <laughs> for half a day. I would love that. <laughs> I'm going to start. I'm going to start. <laughs> So, Clem, we'd love to chat with you about the concept of identity and how your own sense of identity may have evolved, changed or bloomed throughout your life, both before and after diagnosis. Um, Specific to autistic identity or just in general? Yes. Don't forget the specifics. Okay. Um, Specific (laughs) to autistic identity, please. Um, Me as the token neurotypical, I'd love the general. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's interesting because I think think that through uh, becoming more aware of my autistic identity, I think that made a lot of things make sense around other aspects of my identity regarding, you know, sexuality and gender as well. So, I think part of the kind of um, road to diagnosis was that I did have all these kind of question marks around gender and expectations of gender. And it was often things that mum and I would really clash on, like, you know, having a shower or or like getting dressed up for the thing or wearing, you know, whatever. Um, And so I think think once I understood myself as autistic, that started to make a lot of those things make sense because I think often with with autistic people we do have a kind of question mark around things that seem to be expected of us by you know polite society um and it's it's complex because some of that stuff is to do with executive function or occasional lack thereof so tidying the house you know washing and brushing your hair things that are just like low on the to-do list because there's other things that you know i have to spend more time on or i want to spend more time on Um, so I think that that was really interesting. I think I came out the other side of being diagnosed, sort of being extra positive because I was anticipating that some people would say, oh, how terrible, you know, that you've, now that you know the truth, like how sad for you. And there was a bit of a kind of slight kind of touch of the funereal to some people's reactions. So I think I overcompensated a bit, but I still didn't really understand what it even meant for me as an autistic person to be like, well, what is my identity as an autistic person? Uh, and because I was being mega positive and I guess I I sort of had more, uh, I think I was still doing a fair bit of like digital journalism. So it sort of very quickly became a thing to write about. What can you say in 800 words? I had to be, I had to be upbeat about it. Like I couldn't go into all the kind of specific nuance of, of how I felt and, and, and what the situation was for other autistic people. So I think it, it sort of took, it, it was almost, I think it's in part a bit of a mourning process where you go, if I'd known earlier, what would have been different? Um, uh, But, yeah, I think it took probably another year to kind of really fully understand what it meant to have that sense of autistic pride um, from an identity perspective. And I think that was definitely helped by hanging out with, you know, really awesome younger autistic 
advocates like Shadia Hancock who had that that sort of self-understanding um, earlier in their lives, so they had longer to to foster that sense of um, self-advocacy. I still have to remind myself that it's okay to have access needs. Uh, and so often I'll, they'll be offered to me and I'll be like, oh, I sort of go to say, no, no, it's all good, uh, and then I have to kind of step back and say, actually, yes, I would like, you know, a visual schedule or, or a kind of blow-by-blow blow of how to get into the building or a quiet space to, to charge down afterwards. Like it's hard for me still to say I can't come out to the cocktail party after the, like I have to go home and not feel like I'm letting people down or being antisocial. Uh, I mean, I'm really lucky that I think a lot of my colleagues either are themselves neurodivergent or they understand it. So, you know, that's been great. But, um, yeah, that's still an uphill battle for me, whereas I can see in younger people um, who have have known that about themselves, um, you know, from an earlier age. I don't want to say it's easier, but I think that they have a habit of being of being able to advocate for themselves. So I'm still developing that, and I think I think part of it too, from an identity perspective, is is um, peeling away those sort of onion onion skin layers of that mask um, and working out who the who the authentic autistic person actually is underneath all that. Because, you know, usually by the time you're seeking diagnosis as an older person, um, it's like something's malfunctioning, you know, the mask isn't working anymore. Uh, but then, yeah, trying to work out like, okay, well, who is the real me? So you sort of you sort of start at the ground floor really and, and build yourself back up, I think, after that. Mm, yeah, that's something that we hear a lot from uh you know, adults who have received late diagnosis is that kind of separation or unpacking what's the autism, you know, what's my personality, what's a mask, you know, what it's all these different elements. And I think, you know, what you were saying there about younger people who've received an earlier diagnosis, not to say that that just means that their life is a bed of roses, of course not. But I do think that, and, you know, this is in my clinical experience as well, um, teenagers in particular who know that they are neurodivergent of whatever flavour um, actually have a better time with their sense of self and identity than people who are late diagnosed because they're kind of going through that identity building phase, which is adolescence, right, with the knowledge of, oh, okay, here's one of the really crucial pieces of the patchwork quilt that is me. Right, that's and it. here's this kind of essential piece. And you're not filling in the gaps. I think that's the problem. When you don't know, you do tend to frame it through other people's eyes, which is often one of deficiency. So it's you're weird, you're angry, you're this, you're that, you know, you're awkward at parties. Uh, or for me, you know, often I was called an attention seeker or a weirdo. Um, and so I think when you don't know, yeah, you do tend to start thinking about it as being something that's wrong with you. Uh, whereas if you know this is who I am, this is why I am the way I am. It doesn't, it's not a get out of jail free card for school. Like I don't know a lot of autistic people who've had a good time at school, even if they are, you know, staunch in their autistic pride, but at least then they can say it's because I'm autistic, you know, to themselves. So why didn't I have it? Why didn't I have a good time at that party? It's not because I'm an idiot um, or I'm unlikable. It's because I was struggling because the music was too loud. You're currently studying for your PhD and you have a master's in screenwriting. 
but you write about finding university study challenging in your earlier adulthood and in school, um, having some things that you are amazing at and other areas where you really struggled. This is often the paradox of learning with a neurodivergence because the mainstream education system is really not set up for neurodivergent brains. Can you tell us a little bit about how you best learn and best demonstrate your knowledge and if there are any strategies or accommodations for university or tertiary study that you found can support your engagement in these systems? Oh, yeah, I really struggled. I mean, I I, I went straight from school to uni because that was just what you did. You know, we had we were encouraged to know what we wanted to do essentially from about year nine. So I was kind of just like, uh, fashion, like, because it was something that I was interested in, um, despite being, you know, clearly very talented at writing. Um, I mean, I was also, I was also talented at, in studio art. So it wasn't a total, it wasn't a total left field decision, but it really was just like kind of sticking a, pinning the tail on the donkey. Um, so I, I started doing a fashion degree. It was not what I expected because I thought we would just be sitting around designing, you know, beautiful Oscars gowns. Uh, so when I realised I was going to have to design 40 T-shirts, uh, I was not happy. Um, but I think I, it was, you know, it was a struggle for a variety of reasons. I, I found the social aspect of uni really confronting. I was younger than everyone too because I finished school when I was 17 and a half. So I dropped out. Well, I, I deferred after second year with the intention to go back, but then I, I transferred into a TAFE course and then I, I dropped out of that. Um, then I did another year later on. So I think for me looking back that transition to university is really difficult because I think for autistic people there are aspects of tertiary study that are fantastic for us you get to really go deep um but there is I think an increasing uh emphasis on the sort of social aspect of tertiary study like group assignments which I found really challenging <laughs> Monique yes that I made that face many times um, and so uh, challenging, so, challenging. <laughs> so oh hard, God. horrible, so horrible and hard. And I think also just like perhaps because I didn't really understand myself, you know, that didn't that didn't really help. But yeah, so I think you are you sort of come ricocheting out the other side of whatever experience you've had of school. At least you have the kind of structure of knowing this is where I go for this class. You know, this is where the tuck shop is like. And and then so university can be a real a real change and it's sort of always changing it's like different groups class to class let alone year to year you know I had people come and go so you'd sort of feel like you were making headway with friends and then that subject finishes and you know you sort of start from scratch again and I think that was really difficult for me I think um when I went back to do my master's I did feel a bit like I'd kind of gamed the system because I, I was getting a postgraduate degree without ever having graduated and I sort of expected when I went out to get my my um, degree that the big you know vaudeville hook would like pull me off the stage, but I think what I think what I really relished at that point was that for me post post grad study was basically special interest time. You know, it's like it was a year and a half to really go deep on this one project, and it's the same thing with the PhD. And I think I think perhaps that like research suits. I can only speak for myself, but I think that this is true. I've, you know, I've definitely spoken to other autistic people who've done postgrad research. It kind of, I, I think, works for me because it, it's, it sort of rewards that like associative way that we have of thinking. So, I found in the intervening years between dropping out of uni um, and going back to do the masters and now the PhD, 
I was mostly working in digital journalism. And so I would be pitching these things that looking back are academic ideas. They're very kind of like disparate I'm going to put all these three things together and make an argument about it. And they would just be like, no, like, you can, no, you can't write that for the age. <laughs> um, whereas I can see now, yeah, I can write a thing about, you know, gender liberation through ultraviolence in the R-rated X-Men movies of 20th Century Fox. Like, and that's, that's academia. I think, yeah, that's what I have found useful. And I guess also... By the time you get to, I guess even honours, even though I didn't do it, but I've supervised honours students, so honours honors and up, you are sort of, it's kind of on you a bit, you know, it's like your own, in your own time and space to a certain degree. Um, and I think that that has been really useful as well. So I think, I think that there is very, very slow glacial pace of, of improvements around the understanding of how neurodiversity, neurodivergence can can kind of intersect with the university experience. But I think, you know, we're only just getting like accessibility, physical accessibility in a lot of universities. So that has been quite tricky to, to advocate for myself in a way that that didn't feel like it was being received as sort of diva behaviour. It's like, for example, in the first year of the PhD, we all have access to this um, a like high degree research lab and it's really every man for himself. Like you get in there, you might not have the same computer every day. Uh, you can't control the thermostat. There are lots of other people in there with lots of different food smells, things like that. Um, so that was really difficult. And then ironically, I actually ended up being bullied. So so somebody just took a dislike to me and said I typed too loud, which I didn't. And it was like this horror. It was like going back to school again. It was this awful experience of feeling very kind of ostracized and, and unable to stick up for myself. So, yeah, I found that really difficult. And it was hard to it was hard to convey the specific difficulty of that in an autistic context. But I think, you know, that's now three and a half years ago. I, I suspect those conversations would be a little bit easier now because there is that growing understanding of, uh, yeah, autistic people's experience of the world. And so I think that things like Hannah Gadsby's book, her stand-up show, Douglas, the, the Everything's Going to Be Okay, the Josh Thomas series, the upcoming Heartbreak High, like a lot of these things are now they've sort of moved away from people being coded as autistic. They've moved through autism being a problem and now we're just having actually kind of nuanced, not, you know, 100% positive, like I think they're quite complex, um, but representations of autistic experience that sort of help fill in the gaps a bit for people who don't, don't really understand how it can manifest. So they can watch Heartbreak High and see Quinny, the autistic character, you know, struggling at a party because the sensory information is too much for her to bear and be like, oh, maybe that's why my child doesn't like going to the supermarket or, or, or maybe that's why I don't like going to the supermarket. And I think that that's, that's really a good thing. So, yeah, I hope that that will start to, to kind of rub off on the, on the education realm as well. Yeah, I, I cannot wait for Heartbreak High to come out. I've got Fine. it on my watch list, ready to go. Like, I love Chloe Hayden. Oh, <laughs> I'm a big fangirl of hers. Imagine, imagine being her. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting you're talking about, um, yeah, like moving past autistic characters, um, firstly just being coded and then being, okay, it's a problem, and then, you know, just real people. Something that... Uh, I really like to see is I like to see female characters that are a bit crap in the yes. sense that, yes. you know, you don't have to be a um, an archetype of like this kind of 
specific thing, human beings are complicated, you know, there's, and I would love to get to a point where we're seeing the same thing for autistic characters, because that's moving to the point where we're actually acknowledging that autistic people are just people. Some autistic people are assholes and some autistic people are amazing. Some neurotypical people, yeah, well, totally, (laughs) but but the thing is, like, that's just being a human. Right. Some neurotypical people are awesome and some neurotypical people are horrible. Um, it's it's the range of complexity in the human experience. And I think and I can never say this word, infantilizing, infantasizing. Mm, you, you know what I mean? Yes, thank you. Um, it's very that when we say, <laughs> Oh, like here's this perfect autistic character yeah, that's, yeah, you know, so angel. perfect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah. That's my two cents. It's totally, yeah. It's very it's very infantilizing and it's dehumanizing, I think, because it doesn't mm-hmm. allow for that diversity of experience and that nuance that, that we all have. I can be a jerk. My autistic cousins exactly the same. And I think it's a it's a complexity that is not afforded to characters with disability typically. It is changing, mm-hmm. you know. Like I think Barracuda was a great example, the TV TV adaptation of that. And obviously I have to show my my hand. I'm a good friend of Christos and we do radio together. But I think I think what was great about that was towards the end of that show, the character with the disability was was great. He was like a bit of a dickhead and he was giving the lead character shit. And it wasn't just what an unrelenting tragedy that this poor perfect person is in a wheel uses a wheelchair, you know, like um, so I think I think that, that is starting to change a bit with autistic characters too, which is great. I think the the girls on everything's going to be okay, we're, we're, quite, we're quite complex like that, you know, episode to episode, you didn't necessarily like them, um, but, you, but you sort of loved them. So, I mean, you know, I'm trying to do my small part as an autistic screenwriter myself to, to, to push forward those ideas, and it's an uphill battle. Um, it's like sometimes you sort of feel like they're just going, they've just discovered autistic people exist um, in the industry, uh, but I think we're getting there. You know, the rate of change is becoming exponential if you look at how, autistic people were, were um, presented on screen 10 years ago. It was it was vastly different. And I think now even the difference between season one and two of Love on the Spectrum is, is leaps and bounds. So it's getting better. It's getting better. But, yeah, one day I would like to not have to kind of explain everything that I'm trying to do in a script as as, as I take it to, you know, a funding body or, or, or give it to someone to read and for them to just be like, cool, I love this character, not like, could you explain how this autistic, like what's what's their wound, like what's their this, that and the other. It's like <laughs> they're autistic. <laughs> that's a challenge. That's, that's stakes. It's stakes for me to go out of my door. Like that's high stakes. Um, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, fingers crossed. So, Clem, we know that you've got to head off. Um, so thank you so much for your time today. It was an absolute pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. Thank you. It was a lovely chat. Thank you. I'm glad we got to do it. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can head to our page on Patreon and buy us a coffee. Or a wine. Patreon subscribers receive access to a bunch of additional resources, as well as a monthly live Zoom hangout to ask us questions chat about feelings, our favourite thing to talk about, and connect with other neurodivergent women. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website, ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. 
If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle The Neurodivergent Woman Podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.